This is a podcast here, Vital Talk, a part of what we do at Vital Tech. I'm Scott Rood with founder Sean Vitale. And our podcast is different than our webinars in an interesting example. Because me, Scott, not being a more of a novice, and Sean obviously being the expert in the tech mind behind Vital Tech, it allows me to ask layman's questions without judgment that people somewhere in the middle can learn. You can learn about technology, you can learn about if you're getting the most out of your IT provider. Our topic today is cybersecurity. Be sure to check out onvitaltechsolutions.com, the webinar version, which Sean will have a lot more of a visual aid. But cybersecurity is really interesting from someone that, in my opinion, that isn't a tech head because there is a human element here. Why are people getting hacked? And in order to be hacked, there has to be a hacker. What is the mind of a hacker? Yeah, why the heck do these people do this stuff, right? Yeah, uh, I, I, I personally think that they should put their time and energy <laughs> trying to cure cancer than doing what, what, they're, what they're actually doing. Um, at the end of the day, so I think hacking, my personal opinion is I think hacking started out as, you know, no different than somebody who just tags a wall, like spray painting a wall, uh, tags the side of a train. They're just kind of leaving their mark in the industry. Um, they're being creative. Uh, they're incredibly smart people. And yeah, they're just trying to, you know, they're putting their time and energy towards malicious things. I don't, I don't know why, I, you know, you'd have to kind of dig into the psychology of a hacker, I guess. Well, it sounds like it's a myriad of reasons, whether it's they just like to test the limits and be a little mischievous, which could also compound to being extremely malicious and illegal. Yep. In a way, I'm sure some of them, it starts by them trying to have a better idea of tech industry and learning like, what, what can I build? Um, or maybe they're influenced by other money, bad, money or yeah. other people that kind of show them the route. Yeah, I, I, there's the whole social aspect of it as well, right? You wanna be included. It sounds cool to be a hacker. It sounds cool to be a gangster. So I, you know, it, there's, there's that aspect of it too. I think people just wanna be included in a group. Uh, and what I find most interesting, sorry to some of your toes, okay. but like if you're, a, if you're from the social component of hackers, there's an interesting dichotomy because you're, you don't want to get caught. Like you don't want to be on blast. No, right. But you also want to feel connectivity to the other hackers. So like what you do is you basically, I, like, you know, the story of Bitcoin is probably the best example of this is somebody like Bitcoin is this huge, huge thing that's been creative, right? This blockchain, sorry, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Uh, the blockchain, which Bitcoin uses uh, to sell, um, to, to exchange funds. We don't know. No one knows who actually created it yet. It's just this fictitious person who has this fictitious name. And we just will never, I don't know if we'll ever know who it is. And I, I, the point of that is hackers probably want to do the same thing. I want to call myself, you know, Red Wall. And, you know, I'll create this story. I'm staring at a Red Wall. He's the, staring at a Red Wall. If you look to the right of Scott, his left. That's what I'm talking about. But, I, you know, you think about it. You just, Redwall. I'm going to be Redwall, and I want to leave my mark in the world as Redwall. And sure, there might be a couple people who actually know who Redwall is, but for the most part, you just get fulfillment in, in you know, doing things that promote the Redwall. And, and, you know, it kind of creates your identity, I guess, in, in some way, shape, or form. 
Um, so I, I think I think that's how it all started. I really do. And uh, it might be interesting one day if we read some books and kind of dig into the psychology of why those people do what they do. But you know, nowadays, it's, it, it's money. Everyone's hacking for money. And the way that they're doing it, there's a million different avenues. And just off the top of my head, it's taking information, uh, personal information, what you do, what you buy on a day-to-day -day basis. So hacking your Gmail account. Um, you know, what does Scott buy? What does Scott do? Um, you know, how often does he check his car? How often does he, you know, visit amazon.com? Uh, what is he buying off of, you know, the internet these days, just generic information that Scott does all of that stuff can be sold. It can be sold to marketers. It can be sold on black web, a million things. If, and this affects everybody could, hopefully it doesn't. Yeah. But we, the awareness is certainly a valuable thing to learn. What I'm, my question is, and I'm sure from a company standpoint and a personal standpoint is incredibly different. If you're hacked and then notified as such, yep. what do you suggest for these users or companies to do? Yeah. So I, now you're kind of getting into just more of the, the, the monetary side and, and uh, more of the direct impact. So there's really two things that can kind of happen. Um, one is they take your information, they take your credentials and okay, I'm Scott. I'm the director of partnerships, i.e. sales at Vital Tech Solutions. And I have a budget and I have um, people that, you know, work on marketing with me. I have, um, you know, people that work on, you know, buying campaigns with me. I have people, guys in the field that run around and they just carry around five, $10 Amazon cards and they hand them off to people on a day-to-day -day basis. So they can hack your credentials. They can take that wait for, this will be kind of an elaborate story, but it'll make sense. Um, they'll wait for Scott to go on vacation. This is funny talking about you in the third person. And then they'll, um, you know, find out you're in Miami somewhere, having fun. They'll see you on a boat. They'll, at that time, email that person that typically buys the Amazon cards and hands them out to people. And then they'll say, hey, I, I need, you know, I'm not around uh, such and such client, you know, new potential. I need $1,000 Amazon, Amazon cards. We're going to go there and drop one on everybody's desk. Huge opportunity. Um, that person that works with you is most likely going to do it. That's their job, right? That's what they want to do. Who are they really attacking? If they just have a middle-class, normal guy who doesn't have a lot. But you have a budget. You have money. You have access to funds. So, who are they targeting? Is there, I mean, is it, I know the answer in a simple sense is everybody. Yeah. But there are larger whales out there, obviously. Oh, for sure. This is just a small example. So they'll, they'll just, just to finish the example. Yeah, so they'll, right. they'll, they'll, you know, they'll take advantage and they'll just say, hey, I know I'm in Miami. So now the email immediately has credibility, right? Right. And they, they send the email, they get, you know, this person to buy a thousand dollars worth of Amazon or whatever gift cards. And boom, they take those Amazon gift cards. They, that's cash themselves. You can sell those on the, uh, on the dark web, on the black market. You can sell them. There's public websites now where you can resell those cards for a fraction less than just sure. If, if I'm going to buy a $10 gift card, why not buy it for nine? From somebody else if they're willing to just hand it off that way so they'll take those and that's a thousand dollars in their pocket and there's just machines basically of hackers processes and and you know in place where they're implementing these things on a day-to-day -day, hourly basis what if the user doesn't respond to them if they don't respond so that's where user awareness is probably the biggest key for all of this stuff um they they really don't care they might kind of go back and keep fishing you and keep trying yep for the most part, they don't care. These are machines. They're buying software. They're, they're just like 
you know, you, we just finished talking about email campaigns and targeting leads. They're doing the same exact thing. They're just following a process. They're buying hundreds, thousands, millions of contacts. And it's just people taught to pound away, send emails back and forth to people. And so you're saying the hacker is doing this now, how many, how many, they're fishing to how many people? As many as they can all over the world. They can be pretty automated. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then once somebody responds, they probably chime in to you know, include the human element to it. It depends on the type of campaign. We've all seen the ones where, um, you know, I, I am from such and such third world country, my family's starving, please send me money, blah, 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 kind of thing. Like sympathetic people who just aren't paying attention are going to send them money. <laughs> and that's all they're doing is they're just taking that money. They're making it. They're, I mean, that's like the simplest way, right? You create this email. It takes absolutely barely any effort. You just blast it out to people and hope that they send you money. If you send it to a million people and you get a hundred hits, I, that's easy. That's free money. All you did was send an email out. It's, why not do it? From a company standpoint, and this would be targeted to anybody that has power of budget or managing yeah. a company and your network, and it's the masses. It's not a personal account. It can start that way. As you've said, 90% of hacks are through the email avenue, whether yeah. it's impersonation or a link or an attachment. And once it happens, it's encrypted. Like that's when you or an IT company like Vital Tech has to then, they'll get the call from the company. We have been hacked. How do you start? Yeah. So that's, we just covered kind of the phishing aspect of it. And, you know, take that small Amazon thing and put it towards the CEO. We've had clients, you know, send tens of thousands of dollars to people unintentionally. Um, they've worked it out. We've helped figure out where the emails came from and, you know, call the banks and all that typical stuff. We really don't have too much control over it at that point. Um, but the other thing they can do is they can actually hold your data hostage by encrypting it. Um, and, what I mean is everybody accesses a bunch of file shares on a day-to-day -day basis, an F, an H, an S drive, whatever it is, um, stuff in SharePoint. Uh, they have their emails. You know, you have your 365 account. If you click a link, you might actually download something unknowingly, and it's going to execute a script in the background that's just going to run, and it's going to kind of figure out what you have access to, basically. I'm doing this on a very non-technical level, obviously. And identify that shared information, whether it's your email, it's on SharePoint, or if it's on, uh, you know, shared drives like the S or the H drive, and it's just going to encrypt it. And then eventually other people are going to contract the virus because it is shared information and they access that same information on their computers, but they also access other information, a B and L drive, uh, other parts of SharePoint, and it's going to start encrypting that data. After a while, somebody figures out that it's encrypted because once stuff's encrypted, you can't open it. So right. you're going to go to open your sales proposal uh, that you've been writing. You've spent 10 hours working on. It's a huge opportunity. All of a sudden, as you go to open it, a web browser is basically going to pop up and say, guess what? You've been hacked. Um, It'll say that. Yeah. And this is oh, really yeah. important for users out there to yeah. say, all right, well, how do I know when I'm in hack? Oh, totally. Yeah. You have been hacked. Mm -hmm. Maybe similar text. Yeah, I, this is a very common scenario. There's a million different scenarios, but yeah, this is a very common one we faced. I don't even know. There was a couple of two, three years ago. I think it was like almost every two or three months we were kind of facing this where we, we would have to, you know, restore from backup, do a remediation plan and all that other stuff. We can kind of get into that, but yeah, um, it'll encrypt your data. And what it basically asks you to do is you either 
um, restore your data from backup at that point, which we typically recommend because if a malicious person you know, has your data hostage, it doesn't make sense to give them money to get your data back. Uh, I have another side story kind of related to that, which we can bring up in a second. Um, or you pay them money in the form of Bitcoin, which is untransferable. Um, and then when you pay them, first of all, getting Bitcoin is just a nightmare because you can't buy, like you're talking thousands of dollars just to get your data back. And, and you have to do them in increments. You yeah. have to buy in increments and that's per day. So the daily limit nice. to like buy Bitcoin is like, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred or $500 or something like in that. Your story it's had to have happened once. And just a full, a full disclaimer, yeah. if you're working with your client as a company, you're, you're, your initial consult will say to not succumb to extortion. Right. Those. You do not want to give them the money. In, exactly. Right. You want to allow the IT provider, yep. your case with Vital Tech, to go in there and go through your whole routine yeah, the to try to recover, restore, and clean out. Yeah. There's a remediation plan that you just go through and you treat it real similar to a virus that you know humans get basically yeah in the end of though you're talking about a client basically had to go through that model you just explained where there is an extortion they need their data and we actually feel as if if the client's interested in going down this path and we feel as if we have no better choice right now you then found yourself physically going to banks and yeah having to buy pennies to the dollar on yeah the yeah, so I, I, you know, that day I'd never had to, it was our first time. I never had to buy that much Bitcoin. So I had no idea how to do it. Um, Paul and I just kind of, you know, searched the web and figured out a way to do it. But in doing that, um, what you basically can do is you can, so if I own 10 Bitcoins and you own three Bitcoins and that's worth thousands of dollars, um, you can sell those in lots, like, like on a market. So there's websites that where you can actually sell or dump your whole or your partial lot. So I'm, I'm not actually buying Bitcoin from the market, you know, per se, like a stock market. I'm buying Scott's Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, so it's like if you had, you know, uh, 10 shares of Microsoft, 20 shares, and I just wanted to buy those directly from you, you could actually sign over the certificate for me. Yeah, this, this whole thing, it, again, it goes back to money. It, it's an industry. It's literally a business. Right. There's billions of dollars um, of, I call it revenue, being because I treat it just like a business, sure. being generated on a yearly basis because of cybersecurity. People are clicking, right. things, they're giving out their credentials, they're, they're, you're, they're enabling by actually transferring funds. So what we had to do is I was driving around on my scooter because I live in Chicago and it's extremely hard to kind of park everywhere. So I was literally driving on my scooter all day long, going from bank to bank, uh, opening a bank account because that's where, you know, potentially I could buy a lot of Scott's 10 Bitcoins or so-and-so's uh, 10 Bitcoins. And, and I would open an account and then I could just figure, I, I figured I could just transfer the money. Um, there was a couple nuisances there. Like I would go to our bank or a client's bank, get a cashier's check and then go to the other bank. But unfortunately a cashier's check just wasn't like readily available right away. So I had to go back to the bank, deposit that money, hopefully have enough money to, to actually get the cash. I'm just driving around my scooter in the middle of Chicago with you know, a bunch of cash secured to me. And then going to another bank, opening up a bank account, staring at the banker in the eye, just, hey, I need to open a bank account today. Not telling you why, but I'm just curious about other banks. Um, so just kind of going through all of that. And then at the end of the day, um, that website to buy lots actually helped us out. And all you do is you figure out uh, where the person, so Scott Banks, that has the 10 Bitcoin. I actually deposit the money into Scott's account. And I have no idea who it is or Scott. It's just some fictitious name. 
This is all done through Bitcoin, so the money isn't really tracked because of the blockchain technology. It, it just isn't. There's no history of transactions, really. Um, and, and then once I deposit money in your bank account with Bitcoin, specifically that, that, um, that cryptocurrency, you get a wallet and you could, you know, you give me access. I give you access to my wallet. You then deposit the money into my, so this, and this is all just logical money at that point, right? Like you actually have the physical cash in your bank. It's, I can't get it out. Like it's, it's totally in Scott's name, but. Um, I just hope that, you know, you're going to give me the Bitcoin. And then once I do, I have to then take that. And you, you're not the malicious person. You're just somebody who just wants to sell your, your Bitcoin. Yep, that's all you're doing. Then I take that money uh, and I give it to the malicious person in the form of the same thing. I find their Bitcoin wallet. I transfer it to them. And then I just have to wait for them to send me a decryption key so that I can go through the process of decrypting all the files. It's this a nightmare. podcast, by the way, on cybersecurity is taking a turn where it's almost, in a way, a tutorial to, if you want to go down the path. I know, I know. Like, but that's what it is. It, it, it's, it's crazy. What it's done, in my opinion, Sean, is it's brought it more to the public forefront. Like before the internet that's, and before such a digital imprint day in, day out of yes. our society, the dark web and the mob was something that unless you were raised in it yeah. or you were active in trying to get involved in it, yeah. it was a whole different world that you would go and live a full, healthy, normal life where you <laughs> not even know that it's even right. actually happening. It would right. be this almost mythological aspect, but now it's brought far more people into it, if, they, if whether they like it or not, the willing yeah. that want to hack yep. or the unwilling that now are much more of an open target to be manipulated and are more vulnerable. Yep. It's unfortunate, uh, but it, it's, it happens. Totally happens. It happens all the time, every day. Again, billions of dollars are generated from it. I don't have the exact numbers because it exponentially grows that revenue I talk about every single year. Um, so just to, to, to pivot off of that, in yeah. terms of an IT provider for a company, if it's a client or someone reaches out to you and says, we want to do business with you because we need to restore our stuff, what do you do? You all hands that on that yep. right away. Yeah. What are the steps that a tech company is doing to help the company get back their data? Essentially, that's what they want back. They want to ensure that it's no longer encrypted and get all their data back, get back to normal as quickly as possible. That's exactly it. So I'm kind of looking for just an example of phishing email here on Google so that I can kind of pull this up a little bit later. But um, what we basically do at that point is, again, treat it like a human virus. So um, it's a virus. You don't want it to spread. So you have to quarantine it. And that's exactly what they do as humans. Um, so you, you, luckily we have councils, antivirus councils, um, if your environment's set up appropriately where you can kind of identify, okay, there's a bunch of viruses on this computer. Uh, let's, let's, you know, kind of single out that computer, shut that computer down, turn it off. So it doesn't have access to the network anymore, disconnect it. Then we can power it back on and we don't have to worry about it. And we can go through the clean. And then you kind of check all the other computers, um, and start cleaning them. In some cases, we hit every single computer and we clean. We don't wipe them all, but we run, you know, two, three, four different virus malware removal uh, applications to, to just remove the viruses from the computers. Um, so once you have it, all the meanwhile, so that's kind of the cleaning process. That's the first part of it. Uh, well, first thing, actually, let me take a step back. Is you call the client and you have to kind of everything we just talked about. I don't give the whole scooter story, run around to banks and things like that. Um, very, very quickly, kind of just let them know what the plan is. So here's what happened. Here's your situation. Your data is being held hostage. Uh, we can either pay money, which we don't recommend, 
or we can you know, remediate. Uh, the downside of remediating is any work that you had today, because we're going to restore from last night's backup, uh, that data is, is going to be lost. So that's kind of a client decision. We don't really make that ourselves. In company, big or small, Sean, this is all rooted from one person of yeah. the company mm -hmm. clicking on something, negligent or otherwise. Yep. And there's probably public shame there yep. to a degree, yep. depending on how much someone feels bad about it or not. But then... Is there tense? Is there a tense nature? Because I find it interesting. Like you guys are almost in a, from a tech standpoint, a fireman mentality where yep. you have all these things in place. And then when there is a, a disaster in this case, that's when you jump on, yeah. right? Are they, is there a blame element or obviously they're just frustrated mm -hmm. and they want to go to their tech provider and say, we need this fixed. This is unacceptable. Yeah, there's definitely frustrations um, on all levels, right? It, it, I mean, it, it sucks having to go through all of that. It really does. Um, so that's part of the, you just have to talk through it with clients. I guess maybe that's part of our human element. So I just, you know, sympathize with the person because it, it, it sucks. It really does. So, hey, I know this really sucks. Give me five minutes. Let me try and explain our options here. Um, and, and, you know, we can kind of progress forward. And sometimes it's just what happened, who did it and what, what, and you have to kind of steer them in the right direction, the clients, because, um, you can, you can identify who did it, but what good is that doing you right now? So you have to kind of think of the logical progression of how do I get my business back up running? Cause ultimately, you know, that's what I teach. What would you say in numbers, finite terms, what percentage is usually of the data is recovered and how long does the process take? Yeah. So if you, I mean, if you just pay the decryption key, it's, you, you get it all back, right? We've had clients do that where they just pay for the decryption key. They didn't want to lose any work that day. So I drive around, deposit money, blah, 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 go through the process and we're good to go. Um, or you, the only data loss, it's pretty minimal. It's just whatever was, it depends on what time it hit. So if it hit at five o'clock, then you lost a whole eight hour day. They don't live a typical business work day. That's, quite a bit, but most of the times, you know, pretty early on. Um, and you just restore back to the point to where the virus didn't exist. So you don't, that's all you're losing is that productivity while the virus exists. Other than that, as long as you have a solid backup solution, you have tons of storage to be able to restore it back to, um, you can you can restore the data uh, and bring it right back to, to life. So the more people that don't want to be hacked, which should be everyone, what do you do to prevent being hacked? Um, a lot of things. So yeah, good question. You kind of have to just be aware of them. The number one thing I, I think personally is user awareness. If people just know that there's phishing campaigns, if there's, you know, ways to, uh, if they know of the ways that hackers can reach you and, and trick you into you know, making you click something or obtaining your credentials, um, they just won't click it and they won't know. It's, it's pretty easy now because it's a billion dollar industry and anything that generates that much wealth money is, um, it, it kind of just becomes well known in, in society, but there's still a ton of people that so, still don't click it. So um, user awareness is first and foremost, and that's, that's sending out emails. Uh, one of our partners, Mimecast actually came up with this really cool, like um, it's these like video edits of people acting, you know, acting out, going through the scenario. Um, it's a quick two, three, four, five minute video uh, that you can you can look at and you can kind of see. Uh, you, you just watch it. It's somewhat entertaining. So it, again, it creates awareness. Um, you can just take the email and take a screenshot of it. If you're in the IT department or wherever, 
definitely don't send the email because you want people clicking the links, but send the email out with arrows pointing to, hey, this is bad, here's what to look for. Um, you can prevent them from clicking on it as well. So that's the user awareness part. The next part is actually catching them and preventing them. Um, again, I mentioned Mimecast, that's one of our partners we work with, we really like them, they're pretty well known in the, in the market. Um, the next thing you can do is, just like you said, 90% of all emails or of uh, you know, malicious attacks nowadays kind of originate from email. Um, so spam filtering has been around forever and almost every email solution comes with some basic form of spam filtering. There's now something called advanced threat protection and I'll kind of interchangeably say advanced email protection just because I think it, it relates better by saying email, but uh, I think that the, the industry term for it is advanced threat protection. One thing you learn about IT is there's a ton of acronyms and there's, there's all they're created every hour basically. Um, so, uh, you know, this ATP advanced threat protection, maybe I'll just say ATP is basically an advanced spam filter that uses its own algorithms to identify if the domain's brand new, um, if it was actually from generated, originated from within your company. So it could say Scott Rude, it could, um, uh, it could be Vital Tech Solutions, but maybe spelled differently or have two L's or something like that. And it'll actually capture, you know, it goes through basically a series of, of definitions, um, intelligent definitions that identify the email and, and better classify it as a phishing attempt or spam. Um, and Mimecast would be a Mimecast is a perfect, yeah, example of that. Yeah, there's a, a, a Microsoft has one. Microsoft has one. Uh, <clears throat> Barracuda obviously has been in spam. If people know of Barracuda, that's a, a pretty popular. There's a ton of them. There's lots of them out there. Um, uh, we, you know, we basically, what we do is we work with client budgets and try to make a recommendation that best fits their budget. Right. Uh, and that's something you recommend. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. how does it work? So it, it goes through that algorithm, uh, identifies the email and there's a couple things you can do. It'll just block it. And then people get what's called the daily digest of their emails. So you'll get a bunch of emails saying, Hey, here's all the stuff that was blocked. Sometimes there's false positives in there. Um, false negatives in there that I, you know, an email will go through and you want to release it. You can kind of go through and release it. Um, you can take it a step further. So it's just kind of think of it just like normal spam filtering at that point. You can also um, tweak the solution itself to, to be more aggressive with blocking these things. So you can, instead of, if it notices something from an outside source, you can actually have it, anything from an external center, you can just put a banner up at the top. This is an external center. So if it says Scott Rude, it's not actually Scott Rude because there's a banner that says this is from an external center. Um, so you can do those things. You can, links, as we mentioned, you click a link on an email rather than the link actually going to the website that the link is you know, hyperlinked to, um, it'll intervene every link and every email and Mindcast will intervene. Are you sure this is legitimate? And then as you click the link, it'll actually uh, rescan it again in real time, Mimecast in the background, determine whether or not it's uh, malicious. And then it'll, uh, you know, kind of allow, uh, it'll either allow you to go to the website if it's not, or it won't uh, allow you to go to the website at all. It, it sounds like a huge nuisance doing that. And it's just kind of a quick side story, but I actually had a client the other day who, you know, you can whitelist domains. So let's say you're Scott Rude and you're just a vendor that I work with. And I whitelisted your, you know, your domain, whatever vendor.com, srude at vendor.com, totally whitelisted it. Any, I want everything to come through. Well, that's actually going to get through, right? 
Memcast isn't going to block it because you're specifically saying, allow this email to go through. What if you're hacked and uh, someone obtains your credentials? Now Memcast is going to allow it through. So by having that, um, I, think, I think it's called advanced URL protection turned on, it'll actually catch that URL because I'm going to click it. Memcast is going to intervene. It's going to rescan it, even though you're whitelisted to come through, and then it'll kind of block it again. So um, there's a lot of intricate configurations, you know, that was just kind of one example, but that we can, uh, that you can customize with Mimecast. I mean, tons and tons of them. And then, I mean, backups and extra space is something you would always tell another reason you would have want a company to have extra space is because of retention. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, the other quick thing that you can do other than emails, stuff's going to get in, it's going to get whitelisted, it's going to launch a script is, you you know, there's antivirus, there's more important right. antivirus software. And now there's AI involved with you doing behavioral yeah. antivirus rather yeah. where it's thinking from previous data that it's seen. Yep. And then it acts. Yeah. Proactively. Yeah. You can pause this. I'll close the door real quick. Beautiful thing about this, you can just clip this stuff out. Yep. Um, so, you know, traditionally, antivirus works on definition based. So, um, you know, ESET, for example, um, a virus comes out, ESET creates a definition that kills the virus, uh, makes that definition publicly available. Um, the public downloads the virus, pushes it out to the, the definition, sorry, not the virus, uh, downloads the definition. Um, it pushes it out to all their computers, rescans the computers just in case they already had it, because obviously it's already existed at that point. Um, and that's kind of the traditional way of definition-based antivirus. Now there's behavioral-based antivirus that just learns the behaviors of your computers. It understands that um, abnormal behaviors, and it just blocks those behaviors. So there's no definitions at all. It's just here's the behavior of a computer. They might, um, you know, upgrade the software and come up, you know, kind of understand new behaviors as computers and operating systems and software evolves. But for the most part, it just blocks it right away. So you can click that virus all day long. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't, you don't have to worry about a definition or anything. It just automatically kind of stops. So I'd say those two things alone are good prevention. But in the event that you actually get the virus, what do you do to kind of remediate and clean the virus up? Um, now you're talking about backups and restoring some backups. And that's a whole other ballgame as well. You need to have a solid backup solution. You should back up local to your environment. So it's some kind of storage, a hard drive, a NAS, uh, something, some local storage in the environment. You need to make sure you have tons of space because you have your environment already, you know, you already have all this data so, uh, that exists in your environment. And you need to restore the data. Well, you don't want to delete the data that's infected because what if some of it's not or you just don't know you might need it someday so now you need twice the amount of size of the data that already exists so storage is important you need lots and lots of space in the event that this happens so environments that are running you know 80 percent 75 percent capacity they're just not going to be able to restore all their data uh, if they don't have the space um, so solid backup solution you want to restore from a local backup if you can because it's faster otherwise if you know um, the retention doesn't allow the data that you have doesn't allow for you to restore locally. Then you're kind of looking at the cloud, which usually has a higher retention and you're restoring and it's just a much, much longer process because you're downloading all that data off the internet. Uh, we have situations where the virus existed for so long that um, it was a week before they actually, they were working in, the, in production within a couple, a day or two, but uh, we were just waiting for the files to download from the internet and uh, the solution the backup online backup solution was throttling the bandwidth uh, to download from, so couldn't do it.
that stuff. Yeah. If you want to have more of a visual presence on this cybersecurity, be sure to check out our webinar. You can get it on not only vitaltechsolutions.com, but also if you go to our Twitter handle, which is Vital Tech. And uh, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Scott.